the geology of the Red Desert is unexpected, and it's been held quiet for so long. A lot of people have gone through the Red Desert on I-80, but you're going through really the most mundane areas of it, at least geologically and visually. From Wyoming Public Media, this is the Modern West. I'm Micah Schweitzer. From ranches to rigs, this podcast tells stories of the West as it is. In this episode, we'll visit Wyoming's remote Red Desert. The Red Desert encompasses about 9,300 square miles of cinematic panoramas in the southwest corner of the state. The desert is famous for the Kilpecker Sand Dunes, one of North America's largest fields of living dunes. That means the dunes are actively moving. The Red Desert is also home to the world's largest herd of desert elk, and, as we discover, it's also full of fossil fuels. This leads to a question that could define the Red Desert's future. Is it a wilderness or a wasteland? The majority of the desert is currently open to development, but conservationists believe it should be left alone for its natural beauty and should include more wilderness areas. These two competing views have created a controversy on how to manage the Red Desert. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards took a flight over the desert to explore the conflict. When I was a kid, my dad worked in an oil field somewhere near Kilpecker Sand Dunes in the northern Red Desert near Rock Springs. One day, my brother and I got lost out in the sand. One of my dad's fellow roughnecks had to come rescue us. So I'm a little nervous in the Red Desert. But today, I'm conquering my fears. I'm flying in a tiny plane crammed with five others over those very same sand dunes. So if you guys can see up ahead, we're starting to see the Kilpecker sand dunes. This is one of the largest migrating sand dune complexes in the world and the largest in the lower 48. The wind moves these sand dunes, a ribbon of yellow that seems to go on forever in both directions. Beyond is the iconic notched shape of the boar's tusk, a single rock jutting up on the plane. Nearby, tiny dots graze. It's wild horses. Our guide is Wyoming Wilderness Association's Kyle Wilson. He argues that more of the land below us should be protected as wilderness. The Red Desert is the most misunderstood landscape in Wyoming. I've heard from many people who drive through Wyoming that that part of the state is a wasteland, and it's, it's completely opposite of that. In fact, he says, it's home to a rare herd of desert elk, and the longest mule deer migration route in the world, bringing them from the Tetons all the way down to winter here. But while it might not have fences, the Red Desert does have plenty of roads. From above, I see them crisscrossing everywhere, no destination in sight except gas wells. really get an idea of how many roads are out here when you look from above. And it's the number of roads that's the biggest block to convincing the U.S. Congress to designate the northern Red Desert's many study areas as true wilderness. That's with a capital W, a title reserved for only the most pristine lands. No human structures, no machinery, no wheeled vehicles, and no roads. Wildlife biologist Eric Mulvar is the author of Wyoming's Red Desert, a photographic journey. Well, wilderness has a very specific legal definition under the law. It means it's a place where the landscape is predominantly natural. It means it's a landscape which doesn't have heavily developed roads. Less than 3% of the northern Red Desert qualifies for wilderness status. The rest of its 3.5 million acres is already too developed for that designation. But Mulvar is worried energy and mining development could encroach on even that 3%. 
He says the BLM doesn't even require energy companies to get approval before building more roads. The BLM is not like the Forest Service, where the Forest Service has a system of roads that each one has a number, each one's on the map. The BLM pretty much treats these roads as if they belong to the oil and gas industry, and and any kind of secondary use is incidental. But BLM Rock Springs field manager Kimberly Foster says making these lands available to energy development is part of their mission, too. If you're in a pristine wildlife area, that's kind of the highest and best use of that, then, then that's what we'll try to protect. If you're in a you know, heavily developed area that has a high potential for oil and gas resource recovery, then you know, maybe that becomes the highest and best use of that area. Foster says she doesn't know what the upcoming plan will include, but she does know a lot has changed in the last 20 years. Sage-grouse almost went extinct. The energy industry developed new, highly effective extractive technologies and the longest mule deer migration route was discovered. She says whatever decisions are made in the new plan, they won't have a chance to be revised again for 20 years or more. Foster says that means they have to think long-term for everyone with a stake in the area. Because ultimately we're just the, the keepers of the land for the citizens, so that's kind of the biggest challenge is just trying to resolve those conflicts. Foster says her office will release a draft of the plan this next spring for public comment. Wilderness advocates hope the public speaks up, even though they also recognize that making a case for the Red Desert as a pristine wilderness could be a tough sell. For one thing, historically, most folks have been in a hurry to get to the other side, whether pioneers on the Oregon Trail or motorists on I-80. Like me, a little nervous about getting lost in all that wide open space. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. The Red Desert is also a popular attraction for nature photographers and artists. For over three years, Dan Hayward photographed the desert from the land as well as from the air. I asked him about the desert's appeal to photographers. The geology of the Red Desert is unexpected, and it's been held quiet for so long. And a lot of people have gone through the Red Desert on I-80, but you're going through really the most mundane areas of it, at least geologically and visually. But on either side, you know, just a few miles away, it's visually much more stunning. And there's some really uh, interesting features. There's some relatively unique features. And there's also biologically some unique um, animals in there, desert elk and the only herd of them in, in the whole country. I believe it is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting about the Red Desert because we think of it, it is, as this very untamed, wild, vast place. And it is with hundreds of species of unique animals and plants. But it's also very developed with lots of roads and a very productive mineral extraction industry uh, throughout the desert. Absolutely. The Red Desert, because of some of the very special features of it, to me, there's a lot of sacred land out there. We seem in this country to have lost a sense of the sacred. And what makes it sacred to you? And that's certainly subjective, but I would say part of it is actually even the energy that a person, a human, gets when in the presence of some of the elements that are in the desert or in any landscape. And we just don't seem to have that sense of sacred. In other words, it seems to me that money, power, and energy have become the sacred for our culture, and that's a sad thing. So how are you trying to represent the Red Desert 
in your photography, if it is on the one hand this wonderful wild place and on the other hand this developed place? I'm just simply trying to document what's there and not make judgments through my photography and let whoever views the photographs to make their own judgments based on hopefully the visual communication that the images are, but also, of course, it's going to be based on their predispositions towards the subject of development in the Red Desert. So a, a well pad or a road, uh, you're not going to edit that out? Oh, no. No, 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 no. I definitely have been including that. When it's there, it's, it's there. And if it's somewhat in the way of other visual items or even right next to it, there's some really nice little buttes in there that are real subtle, but they're very attractive and they may have a well pad right at the base of it. So, I'll, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll include it. I'll probably shoot images that include it if it makes sense to include it, if it's part of the landscape as I see it. Now, most of us don't have access to airplanes uh, for taking pictures like you do. You do aerial photography. But many of us go out into wild areas and see remarkable things to photograph, but it's so big mm -hmm. that I sometimes wonder, how do I fit this in my camera lens? What <laughs> tips can you give for photographing landscapes that don't have obvious subjects in them or that are just so vast that they're hard to figure out what to take the picture of? The landscapes of Wyoming lend themselves so wonderfully to wide panoramic type of images. And when I shoot most of my landscapes, I determine how much of the landscape I want to include. If the height of the image is going to include a lot of things in the foreground that I don't want, and perhaps a lot of things in the sky that I don't want, then I'll zoom in a lot tighter and I'll create a multi-image panoramic composite. So I can sew them together and create one long image, which ultimately becomes a real wide angle image. It's just a thin line, so you don't have a lot of sky and you don't have a lot of foreground. Since you're zooming in for each right. individual image. Correct, okay. yes. Okay, so stitching together panoramic images. Uh, so that makes it sound like you don't necessarily need to go out with some monstrously wide angle lens to photograph Wyoming. No. To get a wide panoramic image, certainly of, of a ridgeline or even, even of the snowies or the Tetons, can be done with a long lens. And by combining those images, then you create a wider and wider angle of view. And it takes a little bit more work to stitch it all together seamlessly, but, uh, but it's fun. I've, I've probably shot and stitched together five or 600 of these Usually four or five images is usually what I shoot. You get into seven or eight, and it's so long and thin, it's kind of tough to work with. Dan, thanks so much for talking with us and for the tips. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's photographer Dan Hayward. Usually when we think of a desert, we imagine a vast, empty landscape, sand dunes, no plants, no animals. But the Red Desert is full of wildlife, including mule deer. As it turns out, the deer's longest migration route in the world can be found in the Red Desert. The route stretches across the desert and into the Hoback Basin. It was discovered by Wyoming scientist Hall Sawyer. He's a research biologist, and he was accompanied by Joe Reese, a wildlife photographer. Together, they documented the migration, and Wyoming Public Radio's Willow Belden spoke with Hall Sawyer and Joe Reese. Back in early 2011, the Rock Springs BLM was interested in just documenting the baseline movement and distribution patterns of deer uh, just east of Rock Springs. And so 
when I was contracted to do that work, I originally thought it was going to be a pretty easy study because the conventional wisdom was that all these deer resided in the desert year-round. In January 2011, we went out there and we captured 40 mule deer, put these GPS collars on them that collect locations every three hours. But the catch here was that these GPS collars were what we call store on board units. That means you don't get the data back until you get the collar back. So as you might imagine, when that spring of 2011 rolled around, we went out with the fixed wing to locate and check these animals. Um, We couldn't find most of them. It took a lot of head scratching and a whole lot of flying to figure out where these animals were going. And of course, it turns out they were moving more than 150 miles up to the Hoback Basin. What makes it important that these deer migrate, or what makes this migration special? Well, yeah, there's a couple cool things about it. I mean, not only is it the longest mule deer migration ever recorded, uh, but what's, I think, particularly unique about it is that it occurs exclusively outside any protected areas. No national parks, no refuges. This landscape is a a multiple-use landscape, and there's not many areas left where a migration like that could exist outside of protected areas. And so you conducted a migration assessment for this migration route, basically looking at obstacles to the animal's path, uh, threats to their migration route. What did you find? What were some of the key things that you observed there? The obvious things are the the physical barriers, like you mentioned, the fences, the roads. Um, Across this route, they cross more than 100 different fences, three to five different highways, depending on how far they migrate. The second and more complicated sort of uncertainty or potential risk with the migration is the complex land ownership patterns. And this creates a lot of uncertainty in how those lands will be managed into the future. And Joe, I wanted to turn to you for a moment. Uh, Obviously, part of your role here is making all of this information about this migration accessible to the public so that, uh, you know, the layperson can understand what's going on. What has your process been like trying to document this migration photographically? Well, at the beginning, it was pretty difficult. Uh, Just because when deer are migrating, sometimes they don't look like they're migrating. They're kind of spread out and they filter through the landscape. They're they're not like pronghorn who uh, look like a school of fish, you know. So for me to show showing pictures and video deer migrating uh, took some time. And my first fall migration period, which was in 2012, uh, I pretty much got skunked. I didn't get very much good material then, but I, I started to figure out exactly where I should be putting my camera traps. And then this past fall of 2013 is when I got my good material. And for the most part, I did video cameras that were silent. So so the deer didn't actually know they were being filmed. And so this is basically you setting up a camera and then leaving it there and letting it record uh, as the deer go through. Yeah, exactly. If I were to be sitting in any of these places or hanging out there, they know I'm there before I see them. So that was the best tool for me is, is to use a camera trap so I don't disturb them. And I, and I also get the type of footage that we needed to get for the project. You know, Joe plays off this photo trapping stuff like, you know, we just go out there and and his magic happens. But uh, I want to brag a little bit for Joe and just talk about how difficult it is to get the images and the videos he's getting. 
Joe and I spent five days backpacking an enormous amount of camera equipment, and we came away with about 10 seconds of video. Wow. What did you learn about the deer through getting this footage? I mean, what what surprised you about them and this migration route? Well, that's a great question because I thought I knew everything about deer. I mean, I grew up hunting them. But I mean, probably the most interesting thing for me was to check the cameras and see that they vocalize so much. I mean, they're talking to each other. I mean, it seems like you're talking to each other the entire trip, especially at these little bottlenecks, which is pretty neat to see in here. So I guess for both of you, you've spent a lot of time documenting this migration, studying this migration. What's the takeaway from it, and and what do you hope the general public will come to know about it? Well, I think for me, just because the fact that people see mule deer in people's backyards or golf courses or other suburban habitats, there's this impression or it's often assumed that mule deer are plentiful, they don't need a lot of management, or they can just take care of themselves. But in fact, these sort of backyard deer populations are just a drop in the bucket of our overall deer populations. The vast, vast majority of mule deer are migratory. So um, if we want to continue to enjoy the herds and numbers of animals that we have, uh, we need to take care of these migration routes. We've been talking with Hall Sawyer, who's a research biologist at Western Ecosystems Technology, and Joe Reese, who is a wildlife photographer. Thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Willow. To wrap up our visit to the Red Desert, we return to Melody Edwards. Lots of Wyoming landscape art focuses on horses on the open range and iconic mountain ranges, not abandoned mining camps and fracking sites. However, those are both popular subjects for artists Pat Keycutt and David Jones. Melody joined them at their desert camp somewhere north of Wamsetter, along I-80. Installation artist David Jones and painter Pat Keycutt discovered this campsite a few years ago, working on a project for the University of Wyoming. They had this... uh these grants that were offered kind of combining um, biodiversity and art. And so we came up with this idea of exploring the life zones of the Red Desert. They started driving the miles of oil and gas roads north of Rollins. Keycut says that's when they found the oasis. It's funny, we were looking for habitat, we found habitat, and now we've created habitat, including horseshoe pits. <laughs> yeah, including horseshoe pits, exactly. Their campsite sits on a cliff overlooking a natural artesian well. Ducks paddle here. Hawks wheel above. A herd of desert elk migrate past. And all around, natural gas pumps and tanks sit idle. There's definitely times where you come out here and there's a lot of drilling activity, and then there's times where there's none. And right now, actually, there are, I've noticed, there's at least uh, three new wells going in. Joan says they never know if they'll show up and find a new well in their campsite. But they both find inspiration in the sheer size of such industrial sites. They're pretty similar, actually, in aesthetic with some earthwork sculpture. And I think maybe that's my interest in it, too, is like the scale of, you know, they they don't look like they're that big from the road. But when you actually walk around on one of those sites, they're huge. They're huge holes. Keycut says it's important that artists don't turn a blind eye to such landscapes. He says art has the power to change perceptions. It definitely has the ability to change people's approach to how land is used and what the value might be. But tonight's work isn't about industrial sites. Tonight, both artists are waiting for the moon to rise, but for different reasons. Keycut, the painter, 
is close to finishing a series of 31 paintings he's doing of the moon's phases. They all are arranged in a grid. They read like a calendar of a moon. Meanwhile, installation artist Jones hopes to film the moon rising through the window of a miniature mobile home he built. Inside the toy-sized trailer is a mini heap of trash bags, a mini heavy metal band poster on the wall, and a mini chair and coffee table. He built the 53-inch trailer after noticing lots of abandoned mobile homes littered around the Red Desert. And you always kind of find yourself asking the question of, you know, how did this happen? What's the story? Because you don't know what the story is, your brain thinks the worst possible scenario. (laughs) Inside the 1964 Avion travel trailer the artists used for shelter, Jones gets out a laptop and shows the movie he filmed on location of burning the toy-sized trailer down. So I had some cannon fuse. And I used, I just lit it and ran around the corner and hit record. So am I hearing some sound effects, a little bit of yeah, fire sound, burning sound? There's also, um, there's firecrackers behind these windows on little sticks that I super glued in and says they would like I do is they blow it's the windows It's looking great on video. It does look very realistic. So is that one of the firecrackers there? It was. <laughs> it looks so good, dude. <laughs> But Jones still needs one more thing to call the project done, a film of the moon rising through the window. While the artists wait for the moon, they head to the horseshoe pit. There's um, a like rhythm to it that I don't think either of us ever talked about. Over the course of the day, it's like, okay, you get up, you go to the bathroom, get coffee going, and then at some point we kind of part ways, and I go over here and do this, and Pat's over here drawing or painting. Or Cocktail hour is usually pretty important. Horseshoe game is usually pretty important. <laughs> and they always cook a pot of carnitas over the fire. But tonight, that routine is interrupted by the moonrise. In all that emptiness, it's a major event, like fireworks going off, especially this one, huge and red from the smoke of distant wildfires. Keycut hurries out to his blank canvas. He wants to capture all that rusty color. That gold. It's kind of fun to start paintings here for me because Deep down in whatever I finish with it, it's got some of the red desert DNA in it as a layer. But things aren't going as smoothly for Jones and his mobile home. The moonlight isn't bright enough to show up on his camera as it takes photos once a minute. Always there's an easier way to figure this out. But it's kind of a hard part about coming out here. You build this in the shop, then you bring it here. Yeah. <laughs> you think it'll work. And sometimes it does. And it does work. The next morning, Jones shows us the stop-motion video on his laptop. He has months more editing of his film ahead, but he has his last piece, a big red moon rising through the window of an abandoned mobile home somewhere north of Wamsetter. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. And that's it for this edition of The Modern West. You can catch our next episode on the third Tuesday of the month. If you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a positive rating. In the meantime, there are lots more stories about the Modern West at our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. Samuel Sanders produced this podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. The theme music is by Jeff Troxell, and I'm Micah Schweitzer. The Modern West is a production of Wyoming Public Media.